A menace was coming from the east, and the Israelite prophets were desperately ringing the alarm bells. Territory by territory, one place conquered after another, the Assyrians were circling in on the Kingdom of Israel. The new empire's cruel and very ambitious kings were looking to swallow up as much of the Near East as possible, and they finally had the military strength to pull it off. But for the Israelite prophets, it was all brought on by the Israelites themselves, who had forsaken Yahweh, forgotten social justice, and failed to uphold their end to the covenant. The Kingdom of Israel had existed for 208 years. Nineteen kings reigned across nine different dynasties. It was large, wealthy, influential. And this is the story of how it all ended in the year 720 BCE. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. On general principle, you would not want to be conquered by an ancient empire. But if you had to choose, the Assyrians would probably come dead last. They had a reputation for excessive cruelty when it came to who they conquered. Part of it was propaganda. They talked a big game to inspire fear in everyone. Part of it was that the Assyrians in particular absolutely hated rebellion in any form. And if you came after the king, the Assyrians would respond with the cruelest forms of punishment they could think of to scare off everyone else. The Assyrian Empire was centered on Nineveh, their capital, which is in Iraq today. By the 800s BCE, they were spreading south down into Babylon and then west into Syria, right up against the boundaries of the Kingdom of Israel. They came at a bad time for Israel. The king there, Jehu, had been on his own reign of terror to secure power. Jehu was the one who killed Jezebel in the last episode. Long story short, Israel lost a lot of friends under Jehu, especially the friends in Judah down in the south. So when King Shalmaneser III of Assyria threatened Israel, Jehu stood alone and was forced to pay tribute. The Assyrians carved their victory into what's called the Black Obelisk, which sounds like something ominous from the Lord of the Rings. In the year 841 or so, King Jehu is depicted delivering all kinds of spoils to King Shalmaneser III. His Israelite servants are shown carrying booty to Assyria, and a caption lists the things that Jehu brought. Silver and gold bowls, vases, buckets, and a staff and a spear for the king. But what really stands out is the depiction of Jehu bowing in complete supplication before King Shalmaneser. You can't miss him. And here is your ultimate fun fact about this. This image of Jehu is the one and only depiction of a biblical finger in Near Eastern art. Moses, David, Solomon, anyone else mentioned in the Bible? We've never found a single depiction of them from their own lifetimes, except for King Jehu of Israel. The point of all this is that, beginning about a hundred years before the fall of Israel, the Assyrians were already causing problems. Trying to keep the Assyrians at bay was a fact of life of the leaders in the Near East, including Israel and Judah, and for a century they managed to do it, sometimes working together, sometimes not. But by the mid-700s BCE, things were set in motion that couldn't be undone, and the Assyrians, once again, forced Israel into subjugation.
In about the year 745 BCE, an ambitious new Assyrian leader either rose to power or just seized power outright. In his view, Assyria had thus far only dabbled at conquest and empire. He was determined to remake the map of the world. His name was Tiglath-Pilesar III. He would eventually be known as the King of the Four Corners of the World, and then, concerned that people were confused about his greatness, upped it to King of the Universe, which I'm sure really cleared things up for everyone. If we judge the great conquerors of history by just how much of the known world they conquered, then Tiglath-Pilesar III ranks right up there with Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan. We could spend the next several minutes just rattling off the places he sacked, but suffice to say, this guy was on the warpath. And speaking of war, Tiglath-Pilesar III brought an innovation that was to have profoundly important consequences for the Jewish people down the line. Remember, the Assyrians really, really hated people rebelling against them once they had been conquered. To prevent this, Tiglath-Pilesar had the idea of mass deportation. When you conquer a territory or a city, separate the elites, the leaders, from the common people. Break up the population into separate chunks, and send each chunk to a different corner of the empire to be enslaved. That way, people would be in an unfamiliar land, with unfamiliar people, with an unfamiliar language, and without access to their own leaders who could inspire them to revolt. Then, in the conquered territory, send in Assyrian colonists to mingle with whomever was left, ensuring that the territory quickly adopted Assyrian culture. It was a brutal tactic, but generally pretty effective. Coupled with a strategy of total dehumanizing warfare that involved long sieges, impaling people on sticks, and burning people alive, whoever hadn't yet been conquered by the Assyrians was absolutely terrified at the prospect. And so it was that the king of Israel then, a man named Pekach, watched as the Assyrian juggernaut inched closer and closer to his kingdom. A few years before all this, just before Tiglath-Pilesar became king in Assyria, a man from the kingdom of Judah traveled north to Israel to share his prophecies. His name was Amos, and he was greatly alarmed by what he saw. Or more to the point, God was alarmed, and Amos carried the divine message. At its core, the message was that the Israelites were failing when it comes to social justice, and because of this, they were failing at the covenant. To avert disaster, they must repent and make a sincere effort to return to the covenant. Last episode, we introduced the prophets by talking about Elijah, who was primarily concerned with what the king was doing. Amos is the first of a different set of prophets who are more concerned with the Israelites as a whole and direct their prophecies to the people rather than just the king. Marx V. Brettler, the eminent biblical scholar and my grad school professor, laid out Amos's prophetic argument. It goes like this. The God of Israel is the universal God, for everyone and every nation, not just the Israelites. But the people of Israel and Judah have that special relationship with God, the covenant, in which the deal is that God will bless them and they will keep to God. But Amos had a catch. This covenant, he said, isn't unconditional. God does not bless the people no matter what. They have to do right by the covenant itself. The Israelites are accountable for a range of both ethical and religious obligations. If they fail that, then punishment, what Amos called the day of the Lord, will come, bringing disaster. But even in the event of catastrophe, 
God will never allow all the Israelites to be wiped out. A small remnant will always be preserved to carry on. It's a pretty straightforward message with profound influence on Jewish values. God is universal, said Amos, another big step on the evolution towards monotheism. Amos, like all the prophets, wants to urge the Israelites away from their affinity with other gods, especially the Canaanite god Baal. Because unlike their relationship with Baal or any other gods, the Israelites have this sacred bond with Yahweh, the covenant. But the covenant is not just some spiritual idea that floats unmoored from earthly concerns. Because remember that the Israelite God is a God who acts in history, and so human behavior matters a great deal. If you behave wrongly, then the protections and blessings of the covenant are removed, and disaster will fall. What particularly irked Amos at this moment in the mid-700s BCE was the lack of social justice. In their zeal for wealth and power, the rich Israelites had left behind everyone else in the dust, which frankly sounds familiar. They had distorted mor morality and failed in their ethical obligations to care for those less fortunate than themselves, whom Amos called the righteous. This economic inequality had given rise to a great social divide that Amos said was a violation of the communal responsibilities of the covenant. This great social justice was an affront to God and would bring doom to Israel. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, Amos urged. But it's not enough to just atone in a religious sense with rituals and animal sacrifices. Action is also required. Let justice well up like water, he declared, and righteousness like an unfailing stream. You might know that line from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. The Hebrew Bible notes that just two years after Amos started prophesizing doom for Israel, an earthquake shook the whole country. Geologists have confirmed that actually this earthquake really happened. No doubt it would have freaked out the Israelites, and surely some of them would have been motivated to take Amos's words to heart, but apparently not enough. Within a few years, Tiglath-Pilesar was coming for Israel, and the king of Israel, Pekach, thought he had a strategy to hold off the Assyrians. Spoiler alert, he didn't. King Pekach knew he couldn't stop Tiglath-Pilesar on his own. He needed allies. So he rallied the king of Damascus to form a coalition and then appealed to King Ahaz of Judah down in Jerusalem. The three of us, he said, could hold off the Assyrians. King Ahaz, whom the Bible records is not a particularly good king, he wasn't into joining forces. This was a time when Israel and Judah weren't getting along and King Ahaz was actually kind of intrigued by the Assyrians. To force the issue, King Pekach and his allies laid siege to Jerusalem, agreeing to lift it only if Ahaz joined them against Assyria. Instead, King Ahaz wrote to Tiglath-Pilesar asking for his help. Would you be so kind that while you're conquering the Near East to please make sure to sack the Kingdom of Israel and get their army out of my land? The Assyrians, who were already making their way towards Egypt, were happy to oblige. After all, Israel and Judah were in the way. In about the year 732 BCE, Tiglath-Pilesar conquered Damascus and then seized a chunk of Israel's territory. This marked the beginning of the end for Israel. King Pekach was assassinated by one of his army officers, a man named Hoshea. 
Tiglath-Pileser rewarded Hoshea by making him the new king of a much smaller kingdom of Israel. The Assyrian king tried to pretend that he had nothing to do with all this, writing that Pekach was assassinated by his own people, which, while technically true, overlooks Assyria's elegant maneuvering here. Make Judah an ally, and then put a friendly king on the throne of Israel, and now the whole region is yours. But then things took a turn for the worse. The great conqueror Tiglath-Pileser III died in 727 BCE, and his son, Shalmaneser V, took over. The problem was that King Hoshea of Israel was loyal to the father, and now, with Sonny on the throne, didn't want to keep paying a hefty annual tribute in gold. So he stopped. Well, we know how Assyria feels about rebellion, and Shalmaneser V was not amused. He raised an army and made a beeline for Israel's capital city, Samaria. Hoshea tried to just go back to the way things were. Oops, my bad. But the Assyrians were pissed. Hoshea headed out to meet the Assyrians in battle, was captured, and Samaria placed under siege for three years. Eventually, in the year 722, the city fell. We're not quite sure who the Assyrian king was at this point, actually. Shalmaneser V may have died. And the next king, Sargon II, took credit for finally sacking Samaria. There was one last play to make. Several peoples in the region revolted against King Sargon, and the Israelites joined them in a last desperate effort for independence. Everyone lost to the mighty Assyrians. The last king of Israel, Hoshea, captured in battle, was never heard from again. Whatever happened to this last king of Israel, it ended not with a bang, but a whimper. We simply don't know. It was all an inglorious end. In the year 720, the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist and would never rise again. The destruction of the kingdom of Israel in 720 was swift and traumatic. We can only just imagine how horrific it would have been to experience the brunt of the Assyrian juggernaut. For Jewish history, the fall of Israel had a tremendous impact in two ways. One from the deportations, and the second from the remaining Israelite refugees. In the first, the Assyrians applied to Israel the same policy of deportation and population exchange that they carried out everywhere else they conquered. Assyrian colonists were moved into the territory, and the Israelites shipped out and scattered around the empire. King Sargon described what he did. I captured Samaria, and the 27,290 people dwelling in it I took as spoils, he wrote. The rest of them I settled in Assyria. I rebuilt the city of Samaria and made it bigger than it was before. People from the land which I had conquered I settled in it and directed them in their own particular skill. I placed over it my palace official as governor and imposed on them a tax payment as on the citizens of Assyria. As for what happened to the Israelites who were deported to the various corners of Assyria, well, we don't have too much information. They became known as the Ten Lost Tribes of History, the Ten Tribes who made up the Northern Kingdom of Israel but who disappeared into the Assyrian Empire after 720. I talked about them back in Season 3 on Unsolved Jewish Mysteries, episode number 64, called The Ten Lost Tribes. We have hints that one tribe was sent here, another sent there, but what seems to have happened is that these Israelite deportees were absorbed into the local culture over several generations and just eventually became assimilated Assyrians. 
indistinguishable from the people around them, except perhaps a vague memory of having come from a different place. As far as we know, they didn't leave any surviving written accounts that would have shared their stories or explained what happened. The Israelites, and later the Jews, felt deeply this loss, and never forgot the tribes. Their reunification became a key element of the mystical messianic idea, the era of ultimate peace and justice, in which God would regather all the tribes together in the land of Israel. But not everyone was deported from Israel. Archaeology shows a sudden huge increase in population in Judah, the southern Israelite kingdom. The assumption is that it was refugees fleeing the fallen kingdom of Israel. It makes sense, of course. Judah was next door, and after all, these were more or less the same national group, all worshipping Yahweh. People from a variety of the ten northern tribes made their way down south, mixing in with the tribes of Benjamin, Judah, and Levi, who had been in Judah this whole time. We must stress how important this wave of northern refugees was to Jewish history. And here's why. It's not just that they brought themselves. It's that they brought their northern Israelite culture with them. Including, crucially, the various stories and traditions they had accumulated over the past couple hundred years. What that meant was that two separate Israelite literary traditions were now in the same geographical place. This was very important for later combining them into a single narrative— and that's the narrative we find in the Hebrew Bible. Probably starting with the fall of Israel, then, we can see the beginnings of the process of pulling together the Bible, which would take at least a couple hundred more years. Here's a kind of basic and very imperfect metaphor to understand this. Imagine if the Confederates had won the American Civil War in the 1860s, and the United States had split into two countries, one in the North and one in the South. Both of them would have written stories about the Founding Fathers, George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and all the rest. But they would have told different stories about them in order to make it seem like they were the natural and rightful heirs of those founding American principles. And now imagine that 200 years goes by, the Confederacy falls apart, and all these Southerners move back to the United States in the North. And now you're the person in charge of taking all those stories and editing them into a single American narrative— it's a delicate process. You'd pull from this story that came from the South and that story that came from the North, and where there were discrepancies, you might fill them in with your own additions or explanations. This is kind of how the centuries-long process to create the Hebrew Bible played out, beginning now with the fall of Israel. And here's a basic example from that. The great warrior Joshua, Moses' second-in-command, who was credited with leading the Israelite conquest of Canaan, now, Joshua was a hero in the north, but not so much the south. Why? Because he came from the tribe of Ephraim, one of the northern tribes. It's not that the south never heard of him, he just wasn't their guy. I live on the west coast. What do I care about, you know, anyone on the New York Yankees? Anyway, when Israel fell in 720, one of the refugees brought Joshua's story down south with them. Joshua ends up in the Bible because the northerners, who were now living in the south, kept Joshua's stories alive. The editors who later put the Bible together had to include him to appease the northerners' concerns. This all gets very complicated very quickly, and when we talk down the road more about how the Bible was written, we'll get into more of this process of combining stories to produce the biblical account. 
But for now, the main takeaway is that the fall of the kingdom of Israel, as awful as it was, also opened up a new era in Jewish history. For hundreds of years, the Israelites had been writing, gathering, and accumulating stories. Now they were finally together and would start putting together what became perhaps the greatest literary achievement in human history. Amos wasn't the only prophet running around at this time. There was another big one, Isaiah, whose life overlaps this entire period of the destruction of Israel. Amos had been prophesizing up in the north. Isaiah was down south in Judah, watching all this happening with great trepidation. Try as he might to counsel and warn King Ahaz about both the Assyrians and sinning against God, the king of Judah was determined to demonstrate his loyalty to Assyria. Israel was gone, and Judah was now a vassal state of Assyria. Ahaz even visited King Sargon, and brought back an altar that he then installed in the temple in Jerusalem, a terrible affront to the cult of Yahweh. But his time was ending, and according to the Bible, good riddance. Right around the time that Israel fell, Ahaz was succeeded by a new king, who was determined to stand up to Assyria and undo the damage to the Israelite religion. His name was Hezekiah, and he would go on to become one of Jewish history's greatest and most loved kings. That's next time. As always, I'm at jewidontknow.com, and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.